Uh, before we start, I want to make a note. This is the 20th episode of the Jewish History Podcast. Uh, I can't believe we got uh, through 20. It was fantastic. Please do me a favor. Go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, comment, give me reviews. Some of you have. I want the rest of you to do that as well. Tonight's topic is the rise of the Muslims. And we begin after the Talmud has been completed. Uh, the period right after the Talmud completed is known as the Savoraim. And it's about a hundred year period where there's a lot of dramatic shifts that happen in the world at large and in the Jewish community. And there's a, I want to start off with a statement from the Rambam in his introduction. The Rambam is in the Shatz at the Mishnah Torah. Uh, where uh, he writes about there's a there's a decline in in scholarship uh, after the court of Rav Ashi compiled the Talmud that was completed during the during the years of Rav Ashi's son the Jewish people became scattered throughout the world became exceedingly dispersed reached the farthest corners of the world and the most remote continents conflict filled the world the ro- the roads became unsafe with marauders the study of Torah diminished. And no longer did the Jews enter their yeshivas by the thousands and tens of thousands, as they had previously. Now, there were only the isolated remnants, those who Hashem calls in every city and every country. The Rambam is describing a, a massive change that happened during the hundred years after the writing of, of the Talmud. Jewish people are now on the run. They're being dispersed. There's uh, expulsions. The Jewish people are going to all these various different places. A lot of chaos and confusion. Uh, and we're going to study the, that era. And there's... Broadly speaking, there's going to be several interconnected contributing factors to this conflict and turmoil that's going to envelop and consume the Jewish world and also the, the world at large. The first one is going to be the rebalancing of world powers. Until now, the Jews basically for the past five, six hundred years have been under the Roman rule, the Jews in Israel and the Jews in the West. Uh, whereas the Jews in Babylon have been under the Persian rule. The Persians are going to be first the Parthians, then the Sassanians, more about them in a little bit. And there's going to be a lot of rebalancing uh, during this century. So first of all, Rome is going to be in decline. Rome's going to split into two empires, the Eastern and the Western Roman Empire. And even with the Babylonian overseers of the Jews, there's going to be a change in attitude vis-a-vis the Jews, and there's going to be a lot of war during this century, most uh, notably the wars between the Eastern Romans and the Sassanians. And there's also going to be uh, religious changes, religious trends that are going to be changes, specifically the rise of Christianity and its uh, takeover of the world, over, over the world. Now, this period generally is called, not just in, in Jewish history, a, a little bit of a dark time, it's called, known as the Dark Ages, uh, because there's going to be societal decline, there's going to be uh, cultural stagnation, primarily in Europe, after the fall or the uh, dramatic decrease in power of the Roman Empire. So I want to kind of look at these various contributing factors to what's going to happen to the Jews and kind of look at this as a backdrop of the next era of Jewish history. So Rome had ruled the world, basically most of the world, for about 500 years. The period of the first two centuries of the Common Era, roughly, is what's known as Pax Romana. It's the peace of Rome, of Rome. They had the most stability. They had very few wars and rebellions. Of course, the notable exceptions are the Jews, who rebelled multiple times amid Pax Romana. Uh, but their population growth, they increased their land mass. It's This is the best time. The peak of the empire of Rome is the first two centuries 
of the Common Era. Afterwards, it's going to start to decline, but the decline is going to take several hundred years uh, for it to really uh, gain steam. You know, when you have such a huge empire and it's declining, it declines at a very slow rate. So actually the Romans, in certain iterations, the Byzantines, are going to be around until the Ottomans come in the 15th century of the country. So they'll be around for another thousand years, but their peak is behind them. Uh, now, in the third century, things already get very chaotic. There's going to be a lot of different factors that are going to contribute to this. Of course, we could have a whole class and a whole semester studying the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, but there's going to be invasion, civil war, plague, and uh, most injurious is going to be uh, unstable leadership in the third century, they're going to have like 50 different emperors. This will be one year known as the year of the six emperors because things really, it's not good to have uh, such a, a swift change of the guards. They even changed the way the empire operated. So at the end of the third century, they no longer have one emperor in control of everything. They start with having two emperors, a diarchy, not a monarchy. A diarchy, eventually they have a uh, tetrarchy, the four different leaders, four different hubs. And this is the beginning of, of the fraying of the bind of the unified empire. And, uh, in the next century, we're going to see that the Rome is going to split. The eastern half is going to become the Byzantine empire and the western half is going to become the western Roman empire. Now, in the fourth century, so we already spoke about this briefly in the past, uh, we're going to see Constantine, of course, and he's going to embrace Christianity. And that's going to add a lot of uh, tension to this uh, chaotic cauldron already. There's going to be real serious fragmentation and incursions from external forces, efforts at reunification. And by the end of the fourth century, we're dealing essentially with two separate empires. The Western Empire, like we said, basically everything that's in Europe, and the Eastern Roman Empire, that's the Byzantine Empire in Eurasia, and the capital in Byzantium, which became Constantinople, which became Istanbul. And uh, and that's going to be where the kind of things are going to settle for a little bit. Uh, now, the Rome, Romans, uh, they were okay in, with this new setup for uh, a very short amount of time because the Western Roman Empire is going to become under steady attack and what's the the group of people known as the barbarians, and maybe they were named like that by the Romans themselves, all these other tribes and the Gauls and the Goths and the Visigoths and the Celts, all these other European people are going to start attacking and clawing the empire. And uh, by the end of the 5th century, so the 400s, kind of where our st- story is going to be centralized, the Western Roman Empire is going to be conquered. I think the year given is somewhere in the 470s or 480s. The barbaric tribes are going to take over. They're going to sack all the major cities. And now there's a lot of lawlessness and anarchy because these tribes, you know, the Romans say what well, you want about the Romans, but they're very organized and everything fit into the civil order. Like it or not, they had some sort of order. There's some method to the madness. Uh, now there's going to be a whole region of, uh, of, of the world and of Jewish life that's going to be uh, in very uncertain uh, grounds. Uh, now, 
the Byzantines, the Eastern, remember, they're going to try to reclaim that territory and they're not going to be very successful. So essentially, where our story begins is we have Jews living in Europe and uh, they're now under the thumb of all these various Germanic tribes. We have Jews living in Asia Minor, in Turkey, uh, and uh, parts of of that region that are under the Byzantines. And then we have the Jews still living in Babylon under the Persians, known as the Sassanians. And each one of them are going to have their own particular uh, problem. Now, remember, we spoke about last time how they had enough of a window of stability to write down the, the Talmud, to make that fantastic multi-decade effort to compile all the Talmud because they were under the Sassanians, the Persians, and the Persians were somewhat tolerant of the Jews. In uh, Once the Talmud is written, it's almost as if the Almighty held off the chaos for a little bit. They can write the Talmud. Things are going to change for them as well. So you have the Jews living in Europe under the uh, all these other uh, lawless uh, barbarians. It's one of the great mysteries of history, what happened to all those communities. Uh, you would imagine, you know, that the uh, barbaric or certainly not exactly uh, peace-loving tribes that are conquering all of Rome uh, maybe weren't so tolerant to the Jews, but we don't know really what happened to them. Uh, and now these Germanic tribes are going to become Christianized, which is an add another layer of problems for the Jews. Uh, then you have the Jews living under Byzantium, under the Byzantines. The Byzantines, they embrace Christianity. And there is obviously, there's a clash now because the Jews are resisting and rejecting their form of monotheism because their monotheism got very corrupted. Uh, they have all these statues and they have this whole trinity thing. And there's going to be a lot of conflict between the two. And ultimately, uh, there's going to be a pattern that's going to emerge uh, that's going to be emblematic of the way the Christians and the Jews relate with each other for the next thousand some odd years. Pillaging, uh, forced conversions, very, very popular. Unfortunately, there's going to be expulsions, and we'll learn more about that as well, and murder. Uh, and essentially for the next thirteen to 1,400 years, Jews living under Christian control are going to be isolated. Uh, they're going to live, of course, later on in the ghettos, and they're going to be kind of cordoned off from the rest of the of the community, but they never they never kind of embrace uh, the society at large. And that's why the period of the emancipation in the 1800s, or beginning kind of at that time, where the Jews, suddenly all the doors of Christian Europe are open to the Jews, that's a dramatic shift from, you know, the Jews living in a cocoon in their own little communities uh, with the very hostile overlords in the form of the of the Christians, and the Sassanians, the erstwhile friendly or at least tolerant empire under which the Babylonians are going to be living, uh, they are uh, pagans, they are, they, their religion is Zoroastrianism, and at this time, the ideas of Christianity are going to kind of, they're going to enter the world stage, uh, and there's now the empire themselves and their religion is going to become under threat 
from the insurgent Christians. So the way they're going to respond to that is to impose the their form of religion, the Zoroastrianism, on their people. And that's going to affect the Jews as well. Thus, the Jews living really everywhere in the world are going to be under threat. And that's what the Ram says. That Torah is going to be... It's very difficult to teach Torah in any community where you don't have the ability to live as a Jew or to practice as a Jew or to congregate together in a yeshiva environment uh, to study. The Jews, even the Jews in Babylon now, the Sassanians are going to start banning uh, things like Shabbos. They're going to close synagogues. Uh, they're going to start kidnapping Jewish children, executing sages, really bad things uh, that we were not used to in that in that part of the world are going to become commonplace now. So essentially, the Jews are under assault everywhere. And to make matters worse, the two neighbors, the Byzantines and the Sicinians, the Persians, are at constant war. And it's amazing. I was researching this today. Uh, we know the Romans are going all the way back to when the you know to 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 the to the Greeks the Greeks had all their battles with the Persians and then the Romans when they arrived the first thing was to take on the Romans so now the ro- the evolution of Rome in the form of of, of uh, in the form of the Byzantines they're going to be in constant warfare prolonged decades long wars the Roman and Persian wars and essentially the hundred years that is going to be the backdrop for the rise of Islam are going to have protracted, ongoing, incessant, and mutually destructive conflicts between these two empires, Jews living in both uh, in both regions. So let me just run through them here. The Anastasian War between 502 and 506. The Iberian War between 526 and 532. The Lazic War, also known as the Calchidian War, is uh, between 541 and 562. And then after three wars, they got sick and tired of giving them their own name. So then they call them the, Byz- the Byzantine-Sassinian War of 572 to 591 and the Byzantine-Sassinian War of 602 to 628. You get the drift. These countries are in constant war. And these are the two, these are the two most prominent empires in the world. And each are kind of vying for total supremacy over the region and essentially over the world. And in, in, in Jewish history, we look at this kind of stalemate between these two empires as a, as a miracle. Uh, the Talmud tells us that uh, Rab Oshia, uh, he remarked, this is from Psachim, page 87. He said, he quotes a verse, the verse says, Praise Hashem and His righteous acts regarding the unfortified towns of Israel. So what does it mean, this unfortified towns? It's the scattered towns. What does this mean? So how is he deriving this verse? The Almighty showed righteousness to the Jewish people and He scattered them. We look typically at us being a scattered, uh, itinerant nation as a bad thing, says the Talmud. And no, it's really a, a very good thing. Why? So we'll see. So the Talmud goes on to tell a story. And this is, a, there was a, a story where there was apostate who came to Rav Hanina, and he said to them, this, uh, this apostate said to the rabbi, us, us Romans, we're a lot more moral than you are. Why? And he quotes a verse. He quotes a verse, one of the Jewish armies, 
Yoav and all of Israel were made it for six months until they destroyed every male of Edom. There was a war, and the Jews came in and they destroyed everyone. It says, look, look at you guys. You're, you're a bunch of barbarians. You come in and you decimate the whole country. Whereas you have been amongst us, amongst the Romans, for years, for centuries, yet we haven't done anything to you. We're more moral than you are. So his disciple, Reb Oshia, he, answered, he said, I'll respond to him. And he said, the reason why you guys are so nice to us is because you don't know how to possibly accomplish our destruction. You can't destroy all the Jews because they are not all among you. And if you destroy those who are among you, you will be called a murderous kingdom. It means really you do want to destroy all the Jews. That's what your desire is. It's just that you know you only have a certain amount of Jews under your jurisdiction. The rest of the Jews are living elsewhere. So therefore, you can't destroy all the Jews, you can only destroy some, and then you don't achieve your objective, and you're called the murderous kingdom because you're the monarchs, you're the kings who kill their own people. And the Roman responded, I swear to you by the gods of Rome that this problem on our minds, uh, that with this problem on our minds, we lie down at night, and with this we rise up in the morning. He says, you're absolutely right. This is the biggest problem that we have that confounds us more than any other one is the fact that the Jews are not all under our control and we can't possibly destroy them. So we see two nations that are with growing hostility to the Jews and they are warring with each other and none of them kind of seems to make any headway. And they have, you know, one of them is a little bit more successful in one battle and the next battle kind of bounces back. And they're each fighting and in Jewish history, you say that's a great miracle because had one of them gained total hegemony over the entire region, it's likely that they would have made a final solution to get rid of the Jews. Now, this last war, this climactic war of 602 or 610, there's different dates, I guess it seems like there was ongoing skirmishes between the two, so it was a kind of a, a, a constant state of war. This last war indeed was the one that was the make it or break it. Uh, initially, the Persians, the Sassanians, were successful in the earlier parts of the war. You can read about this war. Um, uh, de- there was a lot of details about it. Uh, in the year 622, uh, there is uh, a ch- kind of a, sh- a shift in the direction of the war, and the Romans, the Byzantines, were to be more successful. And at the end of the war, the... Persians are kind of on the verge of collapse, but it's also very important that the Byzantines themselves are very much bloodied from the war. And it's uh, it's interesting that the, these two warring empires are fighting with each other, but each one of them is weakening the other, and then a third insurgent is going to arise and is going to knock them both out very, very fast. And that's, of course, going to be uh, the Muslims. But it's it's interesting here, you know, so uh, the ultimate victor in this last war between the Byzantines and the Sassanians is the Byzantines, uh, and that really spelled doom for the Jews, or at least it could have spelled doom for the Jews. Uh, now, the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, that was essentially the big player there, they were determined to destroy the Jews once and for all, and the ascendant force of the Muslims really dramatically alter the entire world sphere. And, you know, I was thinking, if someone told you in 2010 
or even in 2014, or even 2015, that Donald Trump's going to be the president, you would say that's so incredibly unlikely. We've never had it like that. That's that's out of nowhere. Uh, but kind of it's kind of like a historical anomaly. Someone who's never held public office. Your feelings about him aside, everyone can agree that it's not standard, and no one would have predicted it. But with what happened in the beginning of the seventh century, with the rise of the Muslims out of nowhere to take over the whole world very, very rapidly, I think compared to that, like Donald Trump was eminently predictable. Like it was, this came, this came literally out of nowhere. These people, these Arabs, were an afterthought. Every empire that it had existed, um, the major empires of the world, they didn't even pay attention to not to the Arab people and not to the Arabian Peninsula where the Arab people lived. You look at pictures of old maps of old empires, and you'll notice there's like a sliver going uh, alongside the Arabian Peninsula where the Gulf states are now. That's where they all covered. And then there's this whole Arabian desert in the middle that didn't even think about capturing because there's a bunch of ragtag nomads, a bunch of pagan Arabs that were totally disorganized, exceedingly tribal, and were not a threat at all. And if they would make a raid on some empire, they'd just stamp them down. Like they weren't a military threat in any way. Uh, these primitive tribes had, like we said, no, they're just Bedouins, essentially. They're traveling from in the desert, in tents, with huge harems, uh, not really ha- much ideologically uh, developed, uh, certainly no central authority, and to imagine that they're going to take on the sophisticated and developed and experienced and seasoned empires that have built from scratch these monumental uh, forces and they've been in place and in power for centuries, it's unthinkable. Now these Arabs, these pagans, uh, they had already considered themselves descendants of Ishmael, and in fact, um, many of them still had the tradition to circumcise way before uh, Islam came onto the uh, onto the scene. When Jews would go and settle there, frequently Jews would come settle there. Uh, they would be welcomed as kind of cousins, like we still, I guess, are considered. But they were quite friendly to the Jews uh, who lived there. Uh, and there's a force that's going to arise in the beginning of the 7th century while the two other empires, the aging, feuding empires, are duking it out, expending their last bit of vitality. There's going to be a force that's going to unite the Arabs and that's going to create a striking force of unprecedented speed and tenacity that's going to really take over the whole world, essentially. And that's, of course, Muhammad. So Muhammad's story, he was orphaned really young. He became a merchant, somewhat successful, but traveled the world. And he traveled the world, and he came in contact with many different kinds of people. But he came in contact as well with many Jews and many Christians. And he begins in the 600s to have these trances, these experiences, and... In the year 613, he declares himself a prophet. And in the year 622, he founds religion called Islam. Now, 
where did he come from? Where did he get his ideas? It's interesting. There's a huge like kind of a scholarly debate uh, where he got his notions from. Clearly, it's influenced by by the other monotheistic religions. Uh, the man mentioned most often in the Quran is Moshe. Nineteen out of the twenty-five prophets in the Quran are Jewish prophets, and he has Christian prophets. He, so he, essentially, what he's doing is saying that, oh, we're not contesting uh, the legitimacy of the Jewish tradition and the, the Jewish notions of monotheism, even though they would question the Christians' notions of monotheism. And we're accepting that the Christians had legitimate prophets, but Muhammad is the last prophet, and he's going to tell us the way it really is. And this is very similar to what the Christians essentially tried to do, uh, or what they argued for, is that, yes, the, the Torah and the Jewish tradition, that was right, but you lost it, or whatever, we have it. This is the new covenant. And the Muslims are saying right back at you. The Jews had it. Maybe you guys got it. But now we have it. And we're the last ones. Each one claims to be the last one. Now what's interesting about that is that all of them accept that the Torah and the Jewish people, that was at one point true. You you read Deuteronomy and one of the themes of Deuteronomy is that the Torah is unchangeable. The Torah is immutable. The Torah is fixed. So I always wonder this question. It seems to be oxymoronic, the notion of replacement theology. Well, you guys had it, you lost it. How do you embrace it to be true, or at least the fact that it was true? If it ever was true, it still is true. So it's a little bit of a a problem. There's going to be other problems, of course, as well. Uh, But Muhammad has these encounters with these other people, and he kind of builds upon their ideas and their stories and their mitzvos, and he writes uh, the Quran. Now, one of the miracles of Islam, according to most, because Islam begins to fracture and splinter into different groups, but one of the quote-unquote miracles is the fact that Muhammad, who was illiterate, couldn't read nor write, he was able to prepare the Quran for, uh, he was able to write it, so to speak. That, that's one of their miracles. Um, I read today an interesting I was perusing through an interesting book uh, called The Jewish Foundation of Islam. It talks a lot about the early Islam and how how it came from. And this guy theorizes uh, that really Muhammad could read and he could write. But he realized that he's pilfering all this stuff from other societies and other religions. And he's reading the Midrash, recently published Midrash, and he takes these ideas and tweets them. A lot of the, you read, you read the Quran, it's a lot of Jewish ideas that are just tweaked and kind of move, move a few, change a few names and change a few details and voila, there's no more plagiarism, right? But Muhammad realized that if he is seen kind of perusing through the old, the old uh, Testament, the New Testament and kind of taking his notes and altering it a little bit, well, then uh, then people will question, well, you didn't get it from Gabriel or anything like that. You just copied it and plagiarized it. So therefore, he, he spins the tale. Well, I'm actually illiterate. Well, how do you know this stuff? Well, Gabriel told me. What can I do? Gabriel told me. It's all given from divine sources. Uh, either way, uh, Islam is founded certainly with many Jewish undertones. For example, uh, no eating pig, no eating blood. A lot of uh, their halal laws or at least certainly the early laws are 
uh, very similar to the kosher laws. They fast on the 10th day of the first month. Who else does that? That's like exactly like Yom Kippur. A very fierce monotheism. Uh, the Muslims do not like at all the idea of, of human incarnate of God. That's, that's incredibly foreign to them. Initially, they used the Jewish calendar. You know, we talked about how the Jewish calendar, all the mathematics that goes into, uh, balancing or reconciling a lunar month and a solar year. Well, they said, oh, they did all the math. We'll just use it. They used to pray three times a day towards Jerusalem. And Shabbos, Saturday, was their day of rest. Now, it's clear from all the sources that initially Muhammad tried to court uh, the Jews of his region, the Jews of Mecca and Medina, where he was hanging out. Uh, but they rejected him, and then he turned his position against them. So he changed the attitude of Islam. So, for example, they stopped using the Jewish calendar. Now they just have a lunar calendar, and that's why uh, things change. Things are not seasonal. The holidays aren't seasonal. Friday is now the day of rest. He would have used Sunday, but that was taken by someone else. The day was already taken in the calendar. They uh, start praying towards Mecca. Five daily prayers instead of three. And Muhammad is interesting because initially he doesn't really have a lot of success in the promulgation of his new religion. After three years, he has a grand total of 40 followers. Not really so impressive. I guess to have 40 people dedicated to you is not a minor accomplishment, but it's clear that taking people and convincing them piecemeal of your plan, of your attitude, it's not going to work. So he was actually in Mecca, and the people in Mecca, Mecca was a... uh, a hotbed, an epicenter, a nexus of paganism. And this huge black rock, a meteoroid, that uh, the, the Kaaba, what's known today as the Kaaba, that was a shrine for paganism. And then there's this guy Muhammad comes in, and he says, no, we're rejecting paganism, and we're going to monotheism, we got to take all your idols and smash him. And people's like, no, this is our industry, and they kicked him out. So he flees from Mecca to Medina. There he develops somewhat of a larger following, and then he takes on the attitude of Islamic conquest. And Islamic conquest is very clear. There's two options. You have the nation of Islam, you have the nation of sword or nation of war, and just select which option you want. It's very simple. It's a it's a multiple choice, right? What do you want? You want to die, or you want to join the join the fray? Uh, and they forcibly converted many of the pagans. They killed others. They destroyed the Jewish community in Medina. He turns around, heads back to Mecca, and overwhelms the local tribe there. Destroys all the pagan gods. Rededicates the Kaaba as uh, a, a worship place. Uh, he calls it the Temple of Abraham, of Ibrahim, and Ishmael. It becomes the holy shrine of, of Islam, of course. All his opponents he executes. And it's clear that Islam has taken over at least that region. Now, what's really surprising, Muhammad dies in, in 632, and they start fighting already who's going to be in charge. And then... Uh, Abu Bakr, or I don't know how to pronounce these guys' names, but they, uh, he becomes the next guy, and he only lasts for two more years, and then Omar shows up, but very soon afterwards they have a split, and they haven't reconciled their split ever since. So essentially, Muhammad dies with a very robust religion, but not quite 
on the world stage. But when he's dying, that's precisely the same time that the two massive world empires finish their centuries-long war and are very much weakened. And there's going to be a window here for the Muslims and this new insurgency to take over the world because the two empires that are basically constituting the world are both very exceedingly weak. And that's precisely what they're going to do. So, of course, they begin uh, with these raids on Persia, on the Sassanian Empire and Byzantium. The notion of Arabs coming and having these raids is not new, but an Arab army that is just sweeping their way like a firestorm through all your protection was something new. And they begin the massive conquest of the empires. A few short years later, the Sassanian Empire that has been around for roughly 400 years, it's not a new empire, it ceases to exist. They start capturing all of the Byzantine towns. They capture Jerusalem in 638. They capture the rest of Israel soon afterwards. They start heading to Africa. They capture all of Egypt and then North Africa and Spain. They head north, Asia Minor, uh, Persia. Everything essentially comes under this new empire. And we'll see that it's actually not such a bad thing for the Jews. Because the major existential threat that they were facing, where they had the Byzantines as the looming world leader above all, and their nefarious plans for the Jews, that's going to be thwarted by this new power that's going to arise. I want to look at kind of the big picture a little bit. We know that Jewish history is on a 6,000-year continuum. And the Talmud tells us that the first 2,000 years are tohu, or confusion. The next 2,000 years are Torah. And the third 1,000 years are Messiah. But what this means is, is that there's a process. There's a beginning to the world, and there's the end of the world. And there's something that has to happen in three stages in the interim. And what has to happen is what we call today in modern parlance, tikkun olam, fixing the world. Well, what's wrong with the world? The world doesn't know God. You bring God into the world, and the world gets fixed as a result. So you have 2,000 years of tohu, of confusion. Who arrives at the end of the 2,000 years is Abraham. Abraham brings an end to the confusion. And then you start 2,000 years of Torah. Well, who is the Torah for? Torah is for the Jewish people. The Torah is consolidation of a nation that is committed towards bringing about the Abrahamic destiny to fruition. And then you have, essentially for that 2,000 years, the Jewish people are living in total isolation. Uh, they are not, their, their ideas are not really making much headway in the world sphere. Uh, they encounter other groups, but the groups are not impressed. They, yeah, they spend some time with the Romans, with the Greeks, with the early Persians, Babylonians. All these are the groups that they encounter and the ideas of Judaism are considered way too radical. That they have one invisible God? Why would you have that when you can have 30,000 little figurine gods? It doesn't make any sense to them. And that's the 2,000 years of Torah where the Jewish ideals and the Jewish ideologies don't, they stay within the small group. And then you look at the next, the 2,000 years of Messiah. Messiah is universality. Bringing the day of God to the whole world. What happens 
at the uh, beginning of the end of the uh, beginning of the last two thousand years. Well, you have the break uh, the breakdown of the temple. Jews are not living in Israel anymore. Jews are scattered out throughout the world. I.e., our influence can be heard everywhere. Uh, number one, you have the disbanding of the Jewish autonomy. So no longer are we going to be centralized with authoritative leadership. Uh, and we're not going to have kind of a nationalistic personality as a nation. And not necessarily by our own choosing, we're going to be around other people. And suddenly we see a rise of people taking very keen interest in what we have to say. And we see a spawning of these other religions, notably the Christians and the Muslims, that are descendant from our cousins, Christianity from Esav, and Islam from Ishmael. And they are a son and a grandson of Abraham who are going to do the dirty work of scaling our ideas. We're small, we're isolated, we're hated as a nation. That's the hallmarks of the Jewish people. So for us to change the whole world, how can we do that? So we hire, so to speak, or this is God's plan, of course, but they take our cousins and these people are much more aggressive in their proselytization and they're going to do our dirty work to get the 2,000 years of Messiah on its feet, to start getting the entire world to know about God. So what happens? You have the Christians emerged out of nowhere, essentially, from the Jewish people, or at least very early on, and they start taking over the world. And they start spreading the ideas. And suddenly all these erstwhile pagans believe in an idea that's kind of similar to monotheism. It's not quite monotheism. They have It needs to be tweaked. But even three gods, or at least one that's three or three that's one, whatever that, that's way better than 30,000. They're getting a lot closer. And then you have the Muslims. And they come with unadulterated monotheism. And they too start spreading it throughout the whole world. And today we have a world where there's billions upon billions of people that know about our ideology and the Abrahamic ideology because we outsource the hard work to our cousins. That's what Mamadi says. Mamadi said there's a controversial Rambam, which actually was censored from some editions of the Rambam. And he essentially paints this picture. Uh, he says that the role of the Christians and the Muslims is to pave a path for Messiah to prepare the world, the entirety of the world, to worship God. He quotes a verse. How so? The whole world is already full of the teachings of Torah and of mitzvot and of God. And these ideas disseminated to even the most distant of islands and even the nations that are distant, the most Gentile nations, they're grappling with these ideas and the Torah. And they have, of course, need, there's a need for them to be amended, for them to be polished. But the broad strokes of what we believe and what our mission is to teach the whole world about, the generalities, the big picture, that's already, that's already being disseminated to the world. Finishes the Rambam. When Messiah arrives and he will be successful, 
and they, all of them, they will all return and know and recognize that their forefathers were lied to them and that their prophets and their fathers uh, made blunders. What he's essentially saying here is that there's a very critical role that the Muslims and the Christians play in the the Jewish Weltanschauung, the Jewish perspective. And that is to disseminate the generalities of what we believe. And that way Messiah comes, he doesn't need to introduce generations of pagans to the idea of God and to kind of undo all that damage that was done to them ideologically. All he needs to do is say, yeah, one God, you already believe in one God, but Muhammad has not given you the full story. Here's the full story. Kind of amending it just a little bit. And the Christians, you say, yes, you know, you believe in one God, just he doesn't come down in, in the human form. Just, just kind of excise that from your worldview. And by doing that, you kind of only need to tinker with it a little bit. And therefore, uh, you know, that's, and that's their role to gain wide acceptance of these ideas broadly, so much to prepare the way for Messiah. We look at this time at uh, the era under the Muslims as a reprieve initially from the imminent hostility, uh, but also an opportunity. Under the Muslims, the Babylonian Jewry that was threatened is going to once again reemerge as a formidable Jewish community. We're, of course, going to have very soon the Golden Age of Spain, 400 years where the Jews under the under the Muslims are going to flourish in ways not seen since. And this backdrop, this will be the backdrop for the next era of Jewish history, the era that we know as the Geonim. The Geonim are going to do tremendous work in kind of solidifying and calcifying the Jewish people's relationship to Torah and to Talmud. And they're going to be the nation in which the Dark Ages is going to have tremendous light and illumination. And indeed, in a weird way, and this sounds strange, especially in light of modern political realities, the we look at God as the overseer of history. He's the one who's orchestrating everything. The Jew, we, like we said... Uh, we read it in the Ten Commandments that I'm the Lord, you know, took, a lot of, took it out of the land of Egypt. God is involved with our nation in a direct way in overseeing what's going to happen to us, who's going to be in control of us, what, what's going to be the developments of the nation. And we see this emergence out of the blue of this new unexpected power that's going to really rattle the entire world. Everything's going to change from then on. Everything's going to change. But what does it mean for the Jews? That's always the most important question. Because that's why it's happening. It's happening because now the Jews, uh, they need to have different leadership. They need to have a different empire. And there's also the mission that the Muslims are going to fulfill. And it's not going to be pleasant. Uh, but it's going to be very, very potent. They're going to take over the world. 691, they're going to build a shrine over Temple Mount that still stands today. Uh, 711, it's not a hard year for people in America to to remember. Uh, But 711, they're going to capture Spain. And essentially for the next 1,000 years, 
maybe quite maybe a little less, 700 years, there's going to, Spain is going to be kind of half of Spain is going to be Islamic, half of Spain is going to be Christian, and the Jews are going to do a lot better with the Muslims than we're going to do with the Christians. That's that. Next week, we're going to take a long, hard look at the Ga'onim, the Ga'onid period, an unbelievable period with tremendous personalities, and that's going to lead us in to the following era, to the medieval era, and the dramatic developments that are going to happen to the Jewish people, and the dramatic contributions to Torah that we're going to see, and the great personalities that we're going to meet, and indeed, uh, an oasis of dramatic developments uh, amid a world of stagnation.